0: I have to confess, Jeff No is not the only history nerd around here. I, too, love history. I read a lot of books about it, especially military history. Uh, I really enjoy reading about the Civil War and World War II. And I recently finished a book by Rick Atkinson called An Army at Dawn about America's entrance into the European theater in World War II. And it was a fascinating book. And it went into great detail about the debate early on between the Americans and the British about where and how to attack Nazi Germany, with the British finally convincing the Americans that they weren't ready yet to invade France across the English Channel, and that they should begin the war by attacking Hitler's forces in North Africa. And while not thrilled, the Americans went along. and So American forces landed in Morocco and Algeria, and they headed east to trap Rommel's army, between the American army moving east and the British army moving west from Egypt and Libya. And in their first big battle at Kasserine Pass, the Americans were thrashed by the Germans. And it was the first major problem that faced the U.S. Army in that war. Having greatly expanded the army from 1939 to 1942, America had also greatly expanded the number of officers in the service. And what that meant is that as American forces prepared to go into battle for the first time, many of the officers leading battalions and regiments and divisions and corps had never led that many men or led men into combat at all. And while many had attended West Point and spent years in the service, leading in combat is a whole different animal. And what you saw over the first year of the war in North Africa and Sicily and later Italy was a great shaking out of U.S. commanders with ineffective and poor generals being removed and being replaced by combat leaders rising to the top. And it took time, but eventually America found men like George Patton and Norm Cota and Maurice Rose who could lead men in battle. And that's the point. Everything rises and falls on leadership Whether you're talking about armies or corporations or sports teams or families or God's people, leadership matters and good leadership is crucial to success. And we see this over and over again in Scripture. Godly leadership of men like Moses and Joshua led to great success for God's people. David was a great general and leader of men before he ever became king. But evil kings like Manasseh and Zedekiah led Israel into disaster. Leadership matters, and everything rises and falls on leadership. And that's what we're going to see today as we come to our passage in 1 Samuel 14. We're going to look at the leadership of two men, one godly and bold, the other weak and vacillating. And we'll see the results of both both leaders brought to their soldiers. If leadership matters then the difference between the leadership of King Saul and his son Jonathan was night and day. So turn over to 1 Samuel 14, and let's see the difference real leadership can make. I need to give you a little background here. 1 Samuel 14 is the center chapter of three chapters that detail the downfall of King Saul. As you may recall, at the end of Samuel's life, Israel demanded a king like all the other nations around them to lead them, even though God had been their king. And the king they were given was a tall man named Saul. And early on, Saul did okay. He led Israel to defeat the Ammonites east of the Jordan River, and he showed great mercy and grace toward some people who opposed his kingship. But that brings us to chapter 13 in the beginning of Saul's downfall. At some point, Saul's son and heir, Jonathan, attacked the Philistine garrison at Geba, And defeated them. Well, that poked the bear, and as the Philistine army gathered a huge army to fight against Israel, Saul summoned his soldiers to meet him at Gilgal. But Saul had been instructed to wait there seven days for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice before battle. And while Saul Saul waited, he saw his army slowly melting away. And finally, late on the seventh day, he decided to offer the sacrifice himself. Samuel showed up right after that, but because of Saul's disobedience to the Lord, God judged him by taking away any dynasty from Saul. While Saul would remain king, his line would end with him. And then later in chapter 15, we see the next great act of disobedience to the Lord, when Saul failed to carry out God's command to wipe out the Amalekites completely and spare nothing. Instead, he spared Agag, the Amalekite king, and the best of all the animals. And this time, when Samuel confronted him, he announced God's judgment on Saul that he was no longer king of Israel. He might be on the throne, but he was not the rightful king. And in between these two chapters, we come to chapter 14. The Philistines have launched a three-pronged invasion of Israel in response to Jonathan's attack and they included a large number of chariots and cavalry. And while Saul's army is continuing to shrink, Saul seems incapable of deciding what to do. Israel stands at a crucial point and is in danger of being overwhelmed by the Philistines. It does not look good for Israel. And if ever there was a time for godly leadership, this was it. So let's talk about Jonathan's attack. Jonathan's always been one of my favorite Bible characters. He's one of those rare men in the Bible who is a godly son of an ungodly man. He was a crown prince under Saul. And even when he realized that David would be the next king of Israel, not him, his love and support for David never wavered. His courage and leadership stand out in this chapter. Look at verse 1. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Rather than wait at Gibeah with his father in the army, Jonathan took his armor bearer and went to the pass at Michmash to observe the Philistine garrison that was guarding the pass there. And when they left, Jonathan did not tell his father where he was going. And whether he just grew tired of waiting for the Philistines to attack or waiting for his father to come up with a plan, we aren't told but it was only God's sovereign protection over Israel that had kept the Philistines from attacking already while Saul was so weak and unsure. And with Saul paralyzed over what to do, Jonathan acted. Look at verses 2 and 3. And Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Megron, And the people who were with him were about 600 men, and Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing the nephud. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Saul had moved his army from Gilgal to Gibeah with about 600 men. The problem is, if you read in chapter 13, you discover or Saul had had 2,000 men. So he's lost two-thirds of his force over the last few days. And they weren't killed in battle, they fled out of fear of the Philistines. And with Saul at this time was Ahijah, the high priest. He was a descendant of Eli, and as a descendant of Eli, his family was under a curse and would soon lose the high priesthood. So you have both a king and a high priest who are under the judgment of God. Now look at 4 and 5. Between the passes which, by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes and the name of the other was Senna. And the one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. Jonathan, his armor bearer, came to the passes near Michmash and Geba. The place was well known due to these two distinctive peaks that guarded each end of the pass. And Jonathan knew there was a Philistine garrison up there And he wanted to attack. Look at verse six. And Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to say by many or by few. As Jonathan stared up to where the Philistine garrison was located, he made his decision. They should attack. But notice the attitude of Jonathan. He's confident God will act for them, and he's not worried about the odds. He believes his God can give them a victory, whether they're a few in number, like they are here, or whether they have a great host. God wasn't limited by the number of soldiers Israel had. It wasn't the size of Israel's army that mattered most. It was the size of Israel's God. And he made the difference, and Jonathan believed that. Jonathan had a big God. And it's here we start to get a picture of the kind of man that Jonathan was. He had great faith in God, and he was willing to take risks because of his faith. He was also a man of great personal courage. Attacking a garrison with two men may not be the wisest strategy in the world, but there are times acting by faith means acting in a way that seems out of the normal and at times even seems ridiculous. Marching around a city seven times and yelling at it? A hundred year old woman and a 90 year old man having a baby? A young virgin believing she could have a baby without a husband? Jonathan is merely standing in a long line of those who believed God for the miraculous and saw him answer. Again, Jonathan had a big God. And I'm willing to bet if you asked Jeff and Tanya this morning how they felt when they started Oak Hill, They would say it was a huge step of faith to believe that God could use them to start a church. And I know they probably felt overwhelmed and unqualified much of the time. And yet they trusted God. They acted in faith and look around what God has done through them over these last 16 years. Maybe that's why Hebrews reminds us that it's impossible to please God without having the faith to trust him and to believe he will keep his word. Jonathan was that kind of man. All right, look at verse seven. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Hey, the response of Jonathan's armor bearer tells you a lot about the kind of leader Jonathan was. His armor bearer had great confidence in Jonathan as a warrior and as a leader of men. If he wanted to attack, the armor bearer is right there with him. He not only trusted Jonathan's leadership, he was willing to take risk with him. The men under his command loved him and were willing to follow him even into danger. Now look at 8 to 10. Then Jonathan said, "'Behold, we'll cross over to the men "'and reveal ourselves to them. "'If they say to us, wait until we come to you, "'then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. "'But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, "'for the Lord has given them into our hands.' and this shall be the sign to us. Jonathan felt strongly he needed to attack, but he wanted to give God a chance to stop him if it wasn't the right time. So he came up with this plan. They would come near the Philistine garrison, and if the Philistines told him to stay where they were, they would wait and not move up to attack. But if the Philistines told him to come up, that would be a sign that God wanted them to attack the garrison. Now look at 11 and 12. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. And so the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel." With their plan set, Jonathan and his armor-bearer, they revealed themselves to the Philistine garrison. And it didn't take long for the Philistine soldiers to respond with scorn and abuse. And they mocked Jonathan and his armor-bearer for finally coming out of their holes. And they challenged him to come up, and they would give him a message. And that was the sign Jonathan was waiting for. He told his armor-bearer to follow in the attack because God had given the garrison into their hands. Look at 13 and 14. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer put some to death after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within a half furrow of an acre of land. Jonathan and his armor bearer climbed up to the garrison, and they attack the Philistine soldiers. And in a short time, Jonathan and his armor bearer had killed 20 men in a small area of land." Anyone anyone merely wounded, his armor-bearer finished off. And in and of itself, this skirmish is small, even though two men defeating 20 is a great victory. But what is significant isn't this small victory. It's the fact that God used Jonathan's act of faith as a catalyst for a much bigger victory. Look at verse 15. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field and among the people, And even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earthquake, so it became a great trembling. Remember, Israel's security always depended upon God, not upon its army and not upon its king. And in response to Jonathan's act of faith and courage, God intervened to act on Israel's behalf. As the word of defeat of their garrison reached the larger Philistine army, God used it to create havoc in their midst. It began as a shaking that started amongst the soldiers nearby. And pretty soon as the soldiers trembled, suddenly the very ground itself is shaking under them. And to superstitious pagans like the Philistines, an earthquake at that moment would seem like a horrible omen. Terror spread through the Philistine army. And don't miss the fact that this followed Jonathan's act of faith in attacking the larger garrison. God often asks us to act in faith and trust him for the outcome later. He asks us to give to him first and trust him for his provision. He asks us to maintain our sexual purity and then trust him for his blessings at the right time. This is the normal way God works with his people So ask yourself this morning, is there some place in my life that God is asking me to act in faith and trust him with the outcome? This is where the Christian life gets exciting. Look at 16 and 17. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah, Benjamin, looked and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Uh, Saul's lookouts couldn't believe their eyes. You can imagine standing there and as they'd been watching this Philistine army, which has been growing larger and larger every day. And suddenly everywhere they look, Philistine soldiers are running every which direction, fleeing in panic. And they don't know why. So Saul ordered a quick head count of his troops to see who was missing. And this is the first time that Saul realized that Jonathan and his armor bearer were gone. Look at 18 and 19 then Saul said to Ahijah bring the ark of God here for the ark of God at that time was with the sons of Israel and while Saul talked to the priests the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased so Saul said to the priests withdraw your hand Saul made a good decision here to try and seek the Lord's direction for what was happening and what he should do problem is he's late and behind the curve the whole time Saul's talking with Ahijah, the priests. the commotion and the panic are getting louder on the Philistine camp. Finally, the situation was growing so chaotic that he ordered the priest to withdraw his hands and gave up asking God what to do. The answer was obvious. His army needed to attack. But what you see here is the struggle Saul has to make a decision under pressure. Look at verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. Saul re- finally recognized the opportunity in front of him and brought his army to the battle. And when they arrived at the Philistine lines, it was a scene of utter confusion. As Saul and his men watched, the Philistine soldiers were in the midst of killing each other. And Saul and his men joined in the melee. Look at 21 and 22. 22. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when the men of Israel who'd hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, they also pursued them closely in battle. As word of chaos in the Philistine camp spread, Saul gained back some of his army Israelites who had defected to the Philistines rather than to risk being killed in battle suddenly defected back to Saul and joined the fight. And men who had ran away and hid themselves from the Philistines came out of hiding and helped pursue the fleeing enemy. Everybody loves a winner. Look at verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel that day and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. In response to Jonathan's act of courage and faith, God delivered Israel that day from the Philistines in a battle that became widespread, moving even beyond Beth-Avon, which is east of Bethel. And what is significant this day is Israel has an opportunity to win a crushing blow against the Philistines, like they won under Samuel in 1 Samuel 7 that led to years of peace in Israel. But sadly, poor leadership from Saul will cost Israel the full victory it could have won. So as we said earlier, everything rises and falls on leadership. And given an opportunity to crush his enemies, Saul will squander that chance with a huge tactical blunder that will rob Israel of some of its victory and almost cost the life of Jonathan, Saul's son. And what we will see here, in addition to the bad decision as king, is the continued vacillation of Saul as a leader. Look at verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath saying, "'Cursed be any man who eats food before evening "'until I have avenged myself on my enemies.'" So none of the people tasted food. Just as Israel's entering the battle, Saul makes a rash decision. He placed his army under an oath that any soldier who ate anything before sunset would be cursed. And this is a really bad decision for men who are about to enter combat. First, soldiers in combat burn an enormous amount of energy. And to not be able to eat anything um, meant that after a short time, his men would be weary and lose strength for the fight. If the goal was for them to fight until the Philistines were completely routed, this wasn't the way to do it. So no wonder the text says the men of Israel were hard-pressed. And second, don't miss the arrogance behind it. Saul states that the men aren't to eat until he has avenged himself on his enemies. Considering that this is a battle he himself was afraid to start, his ego seems awfully involved now that the enemy is fleeing. And this strikes me as just a spur of the moment decision to remind people that he's in charge. And Saul's arrogance is growing even as his leadership is wavering. And this is consistent with what you'll see in chapter 15 and onward through Saul's life going forward. Um, as we read in chapter 12 of chapter 15 that Saul, after a victory, set up a monument to himself. Okay, Look at 25 and 26. And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. As the battle spread, Saul's men entered a forest, and they saw some honey on the ground. And you know they had to be tempted, Right? to eat that honey. But out of fear of bringing a curse on themselves, they refused to eat the honey even though they were hungry from the exertions of battle. Fear of Saul's oath compelled their obedience, but you have to know that very few of these men are happy about their fi- having to fight on an empty stomach. Look at 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father put the people under the under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. And he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Jonathan wasn't there when Saul had issued his oath and the curse. So when he saw the honey, he's thrilled. He ate some of the honey and his eyes brightened. It revived him and it gave him fresh strength for the battle. Now look at 28 to 30. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under an oath saying, Curse be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter amongst the Philistines has not been great. When some of his fellow soldiers saw Jonathan eating honey, one of them told him about his father's oath, cursing anyone who ate food during the day. And hearing this, Jonathan was upset and dismayed. He realized that eating some honey had helped him in the fight, and he sees this oath as causing nothing but problems for Israel. Jonathan expresses frustration with his father Saul. He states his father has troubled Israel. And the root idea of that word is to stir up or disturb or to do harm to. Jonathan doesn't think much of his father's oath. Nothing good's going to come from it. Second, he contrasts himself with the rest of the army. He was strengthened and encouraged because he ate some honey. The rest of the men are weary and could have fought much better if they'd eaten during the course of the battle as he did. And finally, he recognizes Israel has forfeited some of the victory because its soldiers were too weak to fight. Ever the good soldier and tactician Jonathan saw quickly that because his soldiers didn't eat all day, their defeat of the Philistines would be less than it should have been. Israel forfeited some of its victory because of Saul's foolish oath. So the loss of some victory that that could have been won is merely the first consequence of Saul's oath. There's more. Look at verses 31, 32. And they struck amongst the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ejelon, and the people were weary. Have you noticed the theme? The people were hard-pressed. The people were weary. All these things flowing out of Saul's oath. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoils and they took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and people ate them with blood. As the day wore on and the Israelites attacked and pursued the Philistines from Michmash all the way to Eijalon, a distance of about 20 miles, Saul's men are weary and exhausted. And by the time, uh, because they haven't eaten all day. So the moment the sun sets, what do they do? They start killing animals and eating them, even though they didn't drain the blood from them, all right, and this is a violation of the law of Moses. Israel was forbidden from eating eating meat with blood in it. And Saul's unwise oath not only has cost Israel some of the victory; now it's brought sin in the camp and puts his soldiers under danger of God's judgment. All right, look at thirty three and thirty four. And they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood, eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so all the people that night each one uh, brought each one his ox to, with him and slaughtered it there. All right, so word reaches Saul of what's happening with his army, and he reacts in anger, accusing his men of acting treacherously. Notice, nowhere does Saul take responsibility for uh, for forcing his men to go hungry all day and creating the circumstances which have led to his men sinning. And in response to sin in the camp, Saul ordered a large stone to be brought and then he commanded all his men to bring the animals to him at that stone where they could make sure the animals were slaughtered properly and the blood drained before the meat was eaten. And sadly, at a time when Saul should have been coordinating the movements of his army to maintain their attack on the Philistines and ensure the biggest victory possible, Saul is now overseeing dinner and the Philistines are escaping. So smaller victory sent into camp and a general distracted from his duties are all the results of of Saul's foolish oath. Look at verse 35. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. This is one of those verses we wish we had more information about, but we don't. Uh, We're told he built his first altar to the Lord here, perhaps either to give God thanks for the victory or as an altar for slaughtering the animals that were to be eaten. But we're really not told why. So what might have been a great day for Israel became merely a good day. And despite the wasted time taking care of soldiers' dinner, Saul wasn't ready to give up pursuit of the Philistines. But Saul's foolish oath will almost have one last devastating uh, consequence, the life of his son Jonathan, the man most responsible for the victory. Look at 36 and 37. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let us draw near to God. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. After dinner, Saul proposes to his army that they continue the pursuit of the Philistines and take spoil with them until morning. And his men agree with him. They're all ready. But the high priest suggests they ask God first to be sure. And when Saul and Ahijah inquire of the Lord about what they should do, God is silent. There's no answer. Look at 38 and 39. Saul said, draw near here, you, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan, my son, he shall, utter, he shall surely die. But not one of the people answered him. After, um, in response to God's silence, Saul concludes there must have been sin in the camp, and that's why God won't answer him. And he decides he's going to investigate the matter and see what happened. And then for the second time this day, Saul makes a rather foolish oath. Whoever the guilty one is, even if it's his son Jonathan, he will surely die. And while his men responded with agree- in agreement with the idea of continuing the attack on the Philistines, they're silent in response to Saul's threat against whoever is guilty, possibly because a number of his soldiers know that Jonathan was the one who has eaten. Look at 40 to 42. Then he said to all Israel... You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. And therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, Cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Um, As was often the case back in those times, they cast lots to decide the issue. And there had to be great drama as Saul prepared to cast the lots to see who the guilty one was. And the first lot was between Saul and Jonathan on one side and the army of Israel on the other side, and Saul and Jonathan were taken. And the second lot was between Saul and Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Now Saul has a big problem. Look at verse 43. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, indeed, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that is in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Um, When Saul presses Jonathan about what happened, Jonathan admits his guilt in eating a little honey during the course of the battle. But remember, Jonathan wasn't in the camp when Saul made the oath. And Jonathan is not trying to show his dad up he honestly didn't know about his father's order and he needed the food to continue to fight. And confronted with his obvious guilt, Jonathan tells Saul, here I am, kill me. But the tone of his reply implies he thinks his father is being rather harsh and arbitrary and condemning him to death over some honey. Now look at 44. As a father, this verse, I I can't understand at all, all right? And Saul said, May God do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Here again, we see this willfulness and pride coming out in Saul. Having sworn the offender to death, Saul seems ready to kill his own son over a little bit of honey. And this stubbornness in Saul's attitude is, is just so real. But Saul is about to find out his soldiers have a completely different view of what's happened and a completely different view. Toward Jonathan. Look at verse 45. But the people said to Saul, Must Jonathan die, who's brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Faced with losing their best commander, the Saul soldiers revolt. At the idea that Jonathan would be put to death for violating an oath that he knew nothing about. And I'm sure if we'd have been there and we could watch what happens as his soldiers respond to Saul, you can see them sort of gathering around Jonathan and forming a ring around him to protect him from Saul. These men are not going to let Jonathan be put to death. And Saul's men remind him that Jonathan was the one that God used to start the battle and bring about this great victory, and he doesn't deserve to die for that. You should be honored, not executed. And in the face of a revolt by his men, Saul backed down, and Jonathan wasn't put to death. The hero of this battle lived to fight another day. But this incident clearly demonstrated that Saul's men did not have full trust in his leadership. Finally, look at verse 46. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. Sadly, again, while Saul's attention is drawn away from continuing the battle against the Philistines and on to what to do with Jonathan, the Philistines were able to make their escape back to their lands. And while this was a major defeat for the Philistines, it was not the utter rout it could have been without Saul's oath leading to sin in the camp and the near death of Jonathan. Poor leadership always has a price. What this day showed was just how critical godly leadership is in achieving anything for the Lord. And the contrast between Saul and Jonathan that day was day and night. Just comparing their characters, we see this great contrast between them. Jonathan was a strong leader. Saul was a weak leader. Jonathan was a man of great faith, willing to step out, take risks, and trust God for the outcome. And at this point in his life, Saul was vacillating in his faith, never sure of what to do, and struggling to make decisions and often, often making poor ones. Jonathan was a man who, lo- who was loved and trusted by his men. Saul was a man whose men did not always trust him. And finally, Jonathan was a humble man, but Saul was proud and stubborn, and it led to issues in his life that will plague him until the day of his death. Taking everything into account, seems like Jonathan is the best man in his family, and I'm rather sad that he never got a chance to be king in his own right or to serve beside his best friend David later on when he ple- as he pledged to do in, in 1 Samuel twenty three seventeen. On a day when leadership mattered, Jonathan proved himself a strong, godly leader while Saul proved himself a weak, vacillating leader, traits that will only get worse over time. So what does all this mean for us today in our lives? The same truth still applies. Everything rises and falls on leadership, and godly leadership matters. If you're an elder or a leader in the church in some way, your leadership matters, and you need to be diligent to do it well. If you're a husband or a father, you have leadership responsibilities before God, and you need to be diligent to set a godly example. If you're a wife and mom, you have leadership responsibilities that are crucial to the success of your family. If you're a boss, you have leadership. Your leadership matters, and you need to work hard to be a godly leader. And if you're an employee, you need to lead by example of what a good employee is like. Take some time this week. Reflect on where you are a leader and how your leadership is doing. If you're a husband, are you living with your wife in an understanding way and showing her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life? Are you loving your wife sacrificially like Christ does the church? Or are you more, fo- more focused on doing what you want than you are about caring for your wife? Wives, you can help your husband's leadership by being encouraging and supportive rather than constantly criticizing and critiquing. No man wants to be, come home and be lectured every night. Parents, are you actively leading and teaching your kids about the Lord, both in your words and your lifestyle? Having a Bible on the shelf and hoping your kids find it is not leadership. How is your courage as a leader? Are you willing to stand for what's right in the face of opposition? Or are you weak and vacillating like Saul? Are you willing to take risks for God when you clearly sense he's leading you? Or do you always play it safe? You know, the only way to develop courage for God is to get to know the God of the Bible. So how is your time in the word? Are you faithfully taking in spiritual nourishment from scripture? If not, you will never have the courage to risk for God because you don't know who your God is. One goal I have set for myself this year with my grandkids is to start to teach them about the need for them to have the courage to stand alone even in the face of their friends or in the face of what's popular if that's what it takes to stay faithful to the Lord. How's your courage to swim against the current? Leaders must be willing to stand alone if necessary for the sake of the truth. And finally, in a day of sexual perversion and promiscuity, do you have the courage as a leader to avoid porn at any cost and treat the opposite sex with respect and honor? Too many Christian young people today are deciding that they'll fool around now and ask for forgiveness later as if God has not promised judgment and discipline on those who are immoral. The courage to lead is the courage to stay pure until marriage and faithful to your spouse afterwards. Everything rises and falls on leadership, and godly leadership matters. And each of us are leaders in some capacity, and it's time we accepted the challenge to be the kind of courageous and godly leaders that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you now for the example of Jonathan, a young man who loved you deeply, a young man who was committed and walked in faith and was willing to risk greatly for for his God when he was sure his God was with him. And I pray, God, for each one of us here today, in whatever capacities we are leaders, that you would help us to lead in godly ways that you would help us to set an example, that you would help us to have the courage to stand alone if necessary, and that you would help us to represent you well. We thank you, Lord, again for the example of Jonathan's leadership. May we be leaders like him. Leadership matters. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.